Hey there, this is Ben Currier, self-proclaimed world's number one failure. In this podcast, we'll learn about the hardest moments my guests faced and the failures they endured on their path towards making it. I hope you enjoy. Hey there, friends of failure, and welcome to this week's episode of the Failure Guy podcast. I'm here with Brandon C. White. Brandon, I bet you put that C in there because there's multiple Brandon Whites or what? There are multiple Brandon Whites and there are multiple criminals who are Brandon Whites. <laughs> so maybe you got to get away with some crime and uh, pin it on them? Then I, I, you're an interesting host already, but I hope not. But I have been detained coming back into the country because of that. So I started putting C. It sort of feels uncomfortable, but... It differentiates me from all the other Brandon Whites. You, you, it's a, it, you think you're very unique, but you realize that. Well, I think it's a little more fun. I mean, it brings an air of specialness. Like not many people use their middle name, I guess. Yeah. I mean, if my parents spent all that effort doing it, why not? Okay. And what does the C stand for? I'm sure people are on the edge of their seats wondering. <laughs> Christian. Nice. Awesome. Well, uh, tell us because... I'm sure my listeners didn't get any prep from me because I don't usually do an intro, but feel free to let myself and the listeners know, you know, what are some of your bigger, better moments where maybe, you know, some shameless brags, so to speak, before we get to the to the lower points? Well, I think we should talk about the, the lower points because they led to the high points. But hey, if you want to do that, that's fine. I'll let you flip the script because maybe it'll be more of a surprise when we get to that plot twist of what you are. And what you do. Yeah, it started out well, if you want me to start there. I mean, I've been an entrepreneur for almost two and a half decades. I started really early. And I'll just go back to the beginning. Is that okay? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not going to go back to the lemonade stand failed for sure. My brother and I's lemonade stand failed because we didn't have a big enough market. I'm curious. What was your method? Uh, How much did you sell it for? Uh, The lemonade stand, we took the plastic table that they used to make for kids. We put it out on the roadside and we just had cups and I don't know how much we sold it for, Ben. It was like 1970s. We probably sold it for like like 25 cents. That wasn't the issue. The issue was is that we lived in the middle of the country and the nearest neighbor was five miles away and there was probably three cars at best that drove by. Yeah, so super low demand. Well, I thought I was a genius when I was a kid. Because I put five cents and no one wants to give you five cents. So they'd give way more. So I found that if you ask for 25 cents, you'd get it. But if you ask for five, you'd get maybe a dollar or two. Well, I do. The, the ironic thing is, is, or not ironic, the crazy thing is, is when you start talking about these things, you really do remember. And I can remember putting that plastic table with those plastic chairs right down from our mailbox. And the mailbox was this big white mailbox. And you could... the mailman would come over close off the road and I can remember that ditch in the stone. It's crazy what that memories bring back. Yeah, I can literally picture the lemonade five cent one with pink writing on a white backboard. So it is weird. Memories like strange like that where uh, you just unlock a little piece of it and then it starts flooding back. Yeah, it's crazy. That was good times. The But I started my, what I would consider my professional career out of failure. Candidly, I... In college, did my undergraduate in psychology. I did a minor in sociology. And I thought that I was going to be a lawyer. My grandfather owned a decent-sized law firm in 
Baltimore, Maryland, and was well known. And I thought that that would make sense. And what I believe in reflection is that I really didn't do anything (laughs) to get towards the goal of being a lawyer. I mean, I didn't intern in college. I I didn't do anything. But what I did do when somebody said, hey, what are you going to do? I said, I'm going to be a lawyer. And nobody asked you any more questions, Ben. Right? It's like, okay, okay, he's going to be a lawyer. Like, no more questions. And that was easy for me. But truth to be told, I didn't do anything to become a lawyer. And when I got out of school, I went back to the tree nursery where I had paid my way through college during the summers. I... Tree nursery. Tree nursery, yeah. So you got to take care of the trees? Take care of the trees, man. Dig, okay, we, cool. I, I was digging big trees, meaning I'd have to show you a picture, but maybe 30-foot trees, some of them. Oh, no, not that big. Yeah. So, so like we were, we would dig very big trees. We, we dug smaller ones like Japanese maples, which have to be hand dug, and then you have to wrap them by hand with burlap, and there's this whole process. The bigger ones, I would dig around the outside with a backhoe and then jump into the hole without it being reinforced, which I'm thinking is an OSHA violation looking back, and <laughs> potentially we're going to get crushed. But we would jump into the hole, we would shape the ball with shovels, and then we would wrap that ball with burlap and rope. And there's actually a whole, there's a whole process to doing that. And then we would get a crane and we would lift that tree out of the hole and put it onto a truck. And then we would put that tree into a hole, believe it or not. You were a tree ER nurse. Yeah. Like an an ER nurse, but yeah, tree. tree, I don't know how the tree tells you guys it's in trouble, but let's go. You wanted to brush past it without, with, just two words. So I'll let you go to whatever that was going to be. So, so, so I went back to the tree nursery, but I felt like I needed to fulfill this promise that I was going to go to law school, I guess. And I have dyslexia. So I am a national honor. I was president of the Psychi National Honor Society in college. I was second in my class in high school, 4.0 student who can't take a standardized test to save his life. And I had a hard time reading growing up. I can't spell to this day. I can't sound out words. I can't hear them. I just memorize them. Ben. So audiobooks and, must have been amazing, right? What, uh, audiobooks? Actually, well, I'm not that old, but we didn't have any audiobooks back then. So Books on I, tape? <laughs> I just read. Candidly, I learned when I read books, I take notes. And I've, tra- I've gotten better over the years because technology and understanding of, of learning disabilities has gotten better. And I also just taught myself how to memorize things. I think the reason I was so smart or appeared to be smart in school was is that I just memorized the page and then I would just read back on the page where that information is and then I would answer the question. Way more work. Oh, it's, it's a lot of mental a lot of mental exercise. Math and numbers were were just natural to me. I mean they they were really Don't easy. Flip those around or anything? So that's not that type of dyslexia. It's an audio dyslexia where you really can't hear sounds. So, and, and it has some other, I call it side effects. I guess it's already a side effect, but you don't remember names as well. I, but I learned how to do that by remembering, taking a picture in my head and then associating with something. There's all sorts of techniques. I just taught myself out of pure necessity of survival. 
But when it comes to standardized tests, and I guess, you know, if you set your mind to anything, you probably do good. But at some level, they were just hard for me. I mean, I, I didn't even, I am graduated second in my class in high school, governor's award. I was first until I decided that my senior year, I was going to just play a little bit more lacrosse and less studying. So I took second, which is fine. But I don't think I broke a thousand on my SATs. And, you know, that's sort of crazy when, when you look at the, the achievement. So long and short of it is I went to take my LSTAT and I think I had an attitude about it anyway, and I didn't do well. And there's a lot of National Honor Society 4.0 students with extracurricular activities that apply to good law schools that also have high scores. And I didn't. So I was still living at home and I wasn't, I was frustrated, but I wasn't disappointed. I mean, it was failure to people who I had answered, who I had said I was going to go to law school. But I I think in my head, never really thought that that was necessarily it, the answer. So my mom, at, luckily, probably saw me struggling, said, hey, look, you should go back to school, no matter what you do, just to get back in that environment to where you can learn and be in a, in a free thinking place. So I said, well, I love psychology. I, you know, worst case in my life, I'll become a psychologist, charge people by the hour. I know I can make a good living, make a bunch of money. Maybe I build a practice. I don't know. So I went back. I actually did well on my GRE. I think I just applied myself probably out of complete fear of failure again and got in it's easier when you're president of the Psychi National Honor Society, but I did get in and I, and I, during my time there, what happened, I think is what my mom predicted, which was I actually decided that I was going to build a fishing magazine. I was a fisherman. I lived on the water in college, luckily, fished all the time. My brother and I fished. And I didn't think that there was a fishing magazine that targeted saltwater fishing, the type of fishing that I did in that method. So I went to the printer in town, long and short of it, realized after he asked me about 150 questions that I clearly didn't know what I was doing. And I clearly didn't have enough money in my bank account to do a first edition of a magazine. So I have always been a tech nerd. I had a Commodore VIC-20 for those who are born during the 70s will remember then I had a Commodore 64 and I had always been programming and things. And I've been on the internet since the really early 1990s. My college was, Washington College was ahead of its time in the sense that we were connected to the internet. It was an Apple environment and we had email and everything is, you know, from 1990 on for me. So I said, there's this internet thing, you know, why wouldn't I just put the magazine online? Like, why wouldn't we just do that? 1990, this is 1996. And I found the smartest kid in the computing lab after I realized that I wasn't going to be able to do everything. I got a job on a spinach farm. And long and short of it is we built what became the largest social networking site for sport fishing on the internet. And we started in 1996. And I had no idea how to raise money. I got a book on how to write a business plan from Barnes and Noble, taking my then girlfriend, now wife, 
We've been together for 25 years. Carr to Annapolis, Maryland and bought a book at Barnes and Noble on how to write a business plan. I read the book, wrote a business plan and we effectively raised a million dollars, mainly because I saw an article on the front of Time Magazine that said that this guy, Jerry Yang and David Philo had raised $1.7 million for a phone book on the internet that we were happy to using called Yahoo. And I was like, if they can do it, we can do it. So we did do it. Crazy story. Here, yeah. So you said like your mom told you to go back to school and you did what she thought you would do, which is make a fishing magazine. Uh, well, right. fi- I think the answer to find that is you find wanted. myself. <laughs> Good. Okay. Perfect. <laughs> yeah. I, I don't think it was do a fishing magazine. It was more... You I was know, curious this is, how she brought you there, if that was the case. Yeah, like, yeah, that would, maybe she did know. I don't know. My mom's sort of that way. But the, I think it was basically, I grew up, she's with a single mom who worked really hard for us to give us opportunities. And I think it was, I'm not saying that this, she, she was selfish, but there was probably a little bit. I worked way too hard to have this, my son get lost because of one failure per se, or one like turn in the road. So, you know, I think she was going to make sure, and she made me go take these personality tests and all this stuff. And, you know, that's supposed to predict your future. I mean, now that I have a master's in psychology, the fact of the matter is the only thing, the only real academically accepted test out there is the five factor test. All the other ones are Myers-Briggs and they're interesting. The disc profile, they're interesting, but from an academic standpoint, most modern psychologists, psychologists really have faith in the five factor. That's just an aside. Write that down, link it. I don't know if you want to talk about it. I have no idea what the five factor thing is, but um, it's up to you. Well, I I encourage people to look it up. It's not that it's not super hard, but it will give you an idea about yourself. I think that those tests, even, even the five factor, which is considered very accurate are good. But at the end of this, at the end of the day, Ben, I think you really just have to be have the courage to look really deep in yourself and understand who you are. And I don't think most people take the time to do that. Yeah. And be willing. I mean, the best test is uh, actually working one of those jobs. I mean, that'll be the real test to see if, if you fit there. But I think, yeah, a lot, a lot of people don't. I know myself included when I picked accounting in undergrad. I really didn't even know what it was when I picked it, but I just knew everyone needs an accountant kind of thing. And then you feel like you're supposed to kind of follow this path that they set before you, but you never really think about, or at least I didn't think about what do I want to be? What do I want to do? I didn't even, I would just keep pushing off the idea that I was ever going to work because, you know, school seemingly took forever. And then you go to college, I got in a fraternity as well. So it's like, oh, I'm not going to think too hard about it. I'll just go into business. And then it's just weird how much of your life can be uh, determined by some seemingly random choices that you could have went any different way. But I thought if I want a creative path, I wouldn't make money ever. Yeah. And they don't teach that. I mean, I, I, they don't, they don't teach that at least in my undergraduate, my first master's degree in my MBA, I would say, they don't necessarily even teach you how to make money. They teach you the skills that they believe you'll get a salary for. So it's it's sort of odd how the educational works like that, isn't it? I'm blown away because I like spend 99% of my time in Excel when I'm working and I didn't learn anything about it really in school. So I was like, well, 
I mean, you guys tell me a bunch of soft skills, I guess, but and overlying framework stuff. But it seems like um, they're woefully lacking in, in any quality education that prepares you for what work is really like. Well, they're in the they're in business too, and they're in business to sell you the idea that if you get their degree, that your life will be better. So they're in sales too. Just because education doesn't mean that. If not, it, get our second degree. <laughs> Yeah, well, of course, because that's a more profitable thing for schools is the master's degree programs. Highly profitable, in fact. It's where they make most of their money. So, and I would just suggest to your listeners out there, because I'm not that old, but I'm, and I started early, but I'm old enough to know that if you have the courage to really look at who you are, and I mean, really understand who you are and accept it and have that then you have the ability to wake up every morning and not have to figure things out, but rather you wake up every morning and execute on whatever plan that you have because you're not trying to figure out who you are. And I think regardless of what anyone does in life, that if you can do that, have that, understand what your principles are, what your right left left limits are, what your business plan is, then you wake up every morning and life's easier. I'm not here preaching this saying that that was easy. I spent a lot of time with psychologists. I studied it probably mainly to understand myself and humans actually fascinate me. But I think that regardless of what happens, and I'll touch on this because it's important. I'm I'm writing an article. I'm not done yet on it as it relates to failure. And the perception out there is that if you People, uh, people say, well, just keep failing. You'll eventually get to success. Actually, the academic research shows that people who fail likely will not succeed on the next try. And the main reason they found is because, and even, so they, if someone's failed, they're actually more likely to fail. That's what the, that's what the real research shows, the academic research. However, however, you don't, have, that that doesn't have to be your future because the difference in the people that didn't, and I'm a testament to this, which we can get through in my story, is if you are willing to truly look at how you failed and what you did wrong and take responsibility for it. Now, is that saying that they have a more than 50% probability of failing in their next venture? Or is this saying of any venture, future ventures, multiple ventures down the road type of thing. It will always be failure. Yeah. That's the research shows that if you fail, you're not more likely or any less likely to succeed. You will likely fail again, unless you can have this from their studies, the people that were able to turn failures or multiple failures into success was a very, very, very deep introspection upon themselves to take responsibility for the mistakes they made because most humans will attribute it to some outside factor that they couldn't control because it's hard to do that. And so then if you can come to terms with your shortcomings, you're saying you're more likely to be able to find ways of overcoming them or putting roadblocks out of your way, so to speak, in order to to get to where you need to be. Yeah. Like, I mean, to, to dumb it down and make it simple, own your mistakes. Own them, like truly own them, not just admit them, own them. 
days later on when you do have a success, remember what failure it was that brought, that let you have the success. Cause a lot of times, you know, there's things you would have messed up in that time if you hadn't learned, you know, some of those harder lessons, like how to negotiate a contract or whatever the thing is that you got screwed over last time. Sometimes that can come back and, and you can like actually tie one to the other. But I think there's also a good bit of resilience you get as a person the more times that you fail. And I, even with that study and what they show, I don't see what the alternative is. You just give up, right? Well, I think what I think the the conclusion as I read it was one they were trying to just show that if you're an investor per se or something and you're making this bet that that's not all you know you, what you need to take into account. And what my takeaway was was that it really hit home for me was that. Hey, look, every time you fail, you really got to go back and do a hot wash or an introspection on what you did wrong and how you can mitigate that factor moving forward and own it, not dismiss it, not say, well, I'm unlucky or it was her fault. What's very interesting about what you said there is that I, well, when I started this podcast, I was only fired from five jobs. I was fired from my sixth job during the podcast. And this is all the jobs I've had since graduating college. But the weird thing is, I feel like, well, first of all, each one of them, I became more of myself and more you know, confident who I am. But there's something you just said that I really wanted to touch on. Can you, what was the last thing you said? Like, what was the last tidbit? Because I had something brilliant. And I'm going to say it's brilliant. It's going to be terrible once I actually remember. <laughs> well, can we replay it? Can we replay that? Re hit rewind. I said, I said, you have to take responsibility for your mistakes. Yes, and this is what it is. Okay, perfect. And then mitigate that. Thank you so much. So I didn't even know I was fired from all five of those jobs because corporate America loves to whitewash and like not tell each other, like you write a resignation form that they told you to write, or they don't tell your next employer that you were let go. They'll just say the salary and whatnot. So like it took me five times before I actually even realized I was fired five times. I, didn't I mean, I'm laughing because it is sort of funny, Ben, but, but that's what happens, right? And some of the times it was because whatever, like I was uh, slacking off too much. I get that was my fault. I smoked weed. They got mad at me. Sure, that's potentially society's fault in my opinion, but also my own. So I just stop you right there. Like whether it's society's fault or not does not matter, Ben. What matters is the reality of the situation, right? But I was at the Red Sox World Series where they won the World Series and I left a joint after they won in Fenway. I mean... Mitigating circumstances, I think, are off the charts there. But still, I will own <laughs> the fact that it should not have happened. But my point is, I think most of those failures, or at least those firings, I hope they also learned something about what it's like to manage someone like me. Because it's not like I ever did bad work or anything. It's just, uh, it was usually a motivation thing. Because paying me more money didn't motivate me more to track rich people's money, changing hands, you know? And then putting stress on me didn't help. It made me do less work, you know? The more micromanaging they got. So just trying to figure out what motivates me even to do stuff because I could go back to corporate America and make a decent living, but it's not at all what I want. So it took me six times of trying that to realize I got to do anything else, you know, but sometimes that's part of it. I think that's you just peeling back the onion and getting to your core and understanding who you are. And that's what each of us has to do because until you get there, I don't want to say life sucks like that. life, Life doesn't suck. Life sucks if you want it to suck, but it's just easier once you know who you are. More fun. Oh, it's way more fun. 
And then you want what you have. And once you want what you have, you're done. It's important to want what you have. One, in my life, once I realized that I wanted what I have, it was like, so cool. I didn't want to have dyslexia. I didn't want to be the kid in sixth grade that was still having the tutor come into class when everybody else was doing fun stuff and I had to do tutoring. Like, but, but then once I owned it, I was like, that really is my uniqueness. That really is, you know, I hate this, all these things that they use on the internet, but it, it really is your superpower, right? Like that's who I am. That's who I am. And I can't, you can change certain things. I, I don't want to say out there because I think it's important. There are times when you will, some things that you can change about yourself. And I think that's important in relationships. After 25 years being with the same person, I think I get to say that is you are going to have to compromise and change some stuff. My wife doesn't like dishes in the sink at night. Candidly, I don't really care because I get up at dark 30 and do them, but she doesn't like it. And if you're going to, I could have easily said, well, you know what? That's just a brandedness thing, Yvette. But in order to make the world a better place because of the person you love, that you make that change. And those things you can change. But there will be core things that you will have to accept. And if you don't accept them, you will fight them and get mad. And you will take that out on the world you live in. And that will affect your entire life. Yeah, and you'll kind of resist your own self. And so when, when you say finding yourself or finding your true purpose, to me, it sounds more like self-confidence and just getting to the point where you feel comfortable in your own skin and, and are able to be yourself. I know that I used to be a different person at work than I was at home, like a little more polished, a little more whatever professionalism that I was putting airs on for. And each time I got fired, I got a little bit closer to the real me. And now I'm kind of the real me all the time. But it can take a while before you even realize what could, because you're trying to compare yourself to whatever the ideological version of yourself you wish you could have been, or like some movie star. It's hard to realize, oh yeah, I'm already all, all good. You know, I just got to, set myself and get wrap my head around the fact that this is who I am. Yeah. And I'm not saying that in professional, I mean, I, I know who I am. I would say two things. One, there are circumstances where you may have to not be your whole self because it's not appropriate in that situation and the consequences could be dire. So I tend to say things people are thinking, but won't say, but need to say, but there are times when it's better that I keep my mouth shut. And I do do that. The other thing that I will say is, is it's not, so self-confidence is two layers of the onion. I'm going deeper than that. I'm saying, why do you do what you do? I'll tell you for me, I love to compete. I compete. Like if you're like, why, why do you do what you do, man? I love to compete. I love to compete against myself. I love the people that I help or my family or that I love or that are friends. I want them to be the best. Like, I just want to compete every day. That's who I am. It's intense. I am cognitively very expensive on people. And I understand that. I wear people out very quickly. And I accept that. And by accepting that, what it allows me to do is see when someone's getting tired and let them off of that and not take it as, oh, it's about there's something wrong with me. No, that's who I am. I'm cognitively expensive. It's, 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 a, it's a pure fact. 
So when I see someone getting tired or restless, then I just back off. And it's, it's not, it's not something bad about me. It's just, that's who I am. And that's what I'm saying because that intensity, that competitiveness that I have of wanting to, to, to compete is my why. And once you accept that. So as a result of that comes self-confidence, if, if that makes sense, Ben. That makes sense. I was, I was skipping past the part of figuring out what those things are, but I'm, I'm in the same boat as you. I, uh, I can talk endlessly. I can think about almost any subject and bore people to death, or at least in terms of talking their ear off far beyond the necessary need for it. But I also have like pretty bad ADHD. So I'm talking about all sorts of different things. You know, I can jump from, you know, one obsession for a few months to another. And so, yeah, I know for a lot of people, it can be emotionally or mentally taxing just to even have a conversation. And then, like you're saying, you got to try to figure out, well, clearly that's something that I do. And I've noticed I don't uh, have a good way of stopping myself, but I could at least try to figure out when other people are getting overwhelmed and try to realize, oh, maybe I should listen a little bit more now or just let all that hit them. Because uh, sometimes it's hard. It's weird that you can have all these things in your head and you've been thinking about them for so long, but then to synthesize it into something that's put, be able to put into someone else's brain can sometimes be such a struggle. It can be. I encourage you to exercise a lot. I ride my bike 150 to 250 miles a week. Wow. Yeah, I don't, but I should. It's on my... Yeah, because you'll work, work all that stuff out in your brain. It also takes the edge off. It'll bring you down to like fourth gear instead of five or six or seven overdrive. And then you put people in their, their red line. But and then sometimes you find people who are the same way and then you just feed off each other and go, go nuts for a little while. I think one of the most freeing things I've ever accepted. Actually, we should look this up. Do you know how many people are on Earth? Right now? Yeah, right now. I'm going to guess. 7.96 billion. Really? You're going to guess that? It could be over eight. I don't know. How did you know that? I don't know. What is it? What did you guess? 7.96 or something? It's 7.674 billion. Oh, yeah, that's not too bad. So, I'm okay. So I, here's what I accepted. And this was a really freeing thing. And maybe if you're listening out there, this helps you. Especially in today's day of the internet and all this, all these perceived lifestyles that people are having, which totally fake is I accepted that there's 7.6, whatever billion people on earth and not everyone's going to like me and I'm not going to like everyone else. And my goal is not to make everyone like me. My goal is to be who I am, which is a kind, not evil, good hearted person. And if I put that for that Fourth, and someone doesn't like it, I'm okay with it. It doesn't mean we can't work together. Doesn't even mean we couldn't build a company together. Doesn't mean we couldn't hang out and ride bikes together. Because I do that with some of these people. It just means that we're probably not going to have a picnic in the backyard together and talk about things because we, we don't align. And once you accept that, then again, you want what you have and your life becomes easier because your expectation is not that you need everyone to like them, not like you, or that if they don't like you, that you have a problem. Now you need to be open going back to this whole failure thing that you may, you may have a problem. You may have that problem, right? You need to be open to that. But 
I think as long as you're not evil, you know, if you're trying to be mean to people and stuff, usually hurt people hurt people. So that's a reflection onto yourself as well. To be clear, a good point that Seth Godin had mentioned in, in his one of his podcasts is um, failure for the sake of failure isn't always great. But also the most important thing is that you're not harming other people if you're that comfortable with failure. You don't want to be, ru- be reckless and ruining people's lives over it. It's more about making sure that you take those mistakes, failures, roadblocks, whatever you want to call them. And after you've figured out how to get past it, or once you've been beaten down by it and get it back up again, is to learn from those things and not just immediately purge that embarrassing memory from your mind, but to really take stock of what you did wrong in the situation, try to figure out how, you know, how can I apply that moving forward. And then move forward. Yes. A lot of times we don't. Or pre- procrastination is so much fun. Well, not, I, it's not fun for me. No, oh, well, then you must not do it, right? No, I do do it. I just hate it. It's just, it's a human nature thing. It's like I do it less because I know that the reward on the other side of it's better. But and do that's you self-loathe just, during the procrastination or just after? I don't self-loathe. I just like I mean, I mean, you said you, you you don't like procrastination. So I'm saying, are you actively not enjoying it when you're procrastinating? Or is it only after the fact that you shamefully no, look back? No, I'm actively not enjoying it, but I'm acknowledging that I'm doing it because I don't want to do the task at hand. See, I try to put other things that seem like I'm making progress on something in the way. And then I'm like tricking myself into not really procrastinating, but I am for sure. The problem you know? with that is before you know it, you're 85 years old and life just passed you by. It's true, but that's not bad. I wouldn't mind being, I mean, not the passing by part. Living 85 sounds pretty nice, though. I'd take that. I, I mean, I like your positive attitude. I just want, would like to have very meaningful experiences up until then. Absolutely. We're on the same page there. I just, um, I thoroughly enjoy the procrastination, I guess is my point. And I got to get myself to stop in order to really make progress. I think some things like, you know, for example, I've worked in finance and accounting for like 15 years or whatever. So I'm, I'm like bored with Excel. I don't want to jump into Excel again. I mean, it's an old hat that I'm really good at, but there's also other fun things I can play around with. And so I got to convince myself, no, stop being an idiot. This is the thing you're good at. Spend more time doing this. But I feel like if I'm doing something that has some sort of, who knows, tangential uh, relationship that I can get away with it. But uh, I mean, I guess what I'm trying to say is it's easy for me to convince myself that I'm doing something towards the bigger goal when I'm actually probably uh, just kind of procrastinating. So I think that's a, it's a big struggle sometimes people have, especially when there's no one else motivating you besides yourself, you know, it's like, I disagree with you. Which part? Uh, well, let me, let me say this. When there's not someone else motivating you, that takes the responsibility off you. So I would caution against that, but I would say this, having a coach you- or a mentor that you are accountable to will change your life. Absolutely. hundred percent. What I meant was my default mode is having no one who's telling me what to do, like, you know, in a, as far as my personal life. So that historically, in my experience, hasn't gone well. When I feel like, even if I have to explain my purchases to another person just to explain it to them, I'd probably then not do it because I have to face it. it from why would you have to explain your, I mean, I'd ask, why do you have to explain your purchases to someone? Well, because like, um, I can convince myself to do almost anything. Like I can manage other people's money, but then when it's my money, it's hard for me to, to tell myself to do the right thing, you know? But if let's say I had to justify to you why I was going to get this new shiny object, 
And then as I'm talking to you, I'm realizing that I don't need it. I can't afford it and I shouldn't get it. Like it would happen more if I had to like convince someone else because I can convince myself very easily to do things like that. Well, it seems like you're self-aware. I guess I just, every time you think about doing that and convincing yourself, just ask yourself if you want to be retired at 65 and what type of life you want. I just need to pay myself a salary and have someone else keep all the rest of the money. And like, I need to have not access to it is what I think. But I also think I need to not work in finance and accounting so that I actually can work on my own stuff and not be too tired from all the other finance and accounting to even approach my own stuff. I think it's part of it. It could be. I don't know. I think you should, I don't, I think, uh, I think that the belief that you should follow your passion and make that your life isn't always good advice. I think that you should do what you're good at and be good at it and allow that to earn you a living and, and money that allows you to do what you're passionate about. And if you're lucky enough to turn your passion into a business that still stays your passion, then good for you. I will tell you getting just, I don't want your listeners to be left without closing the story that my fishing site actually ruined that passion. So I haven't fished in, well, I'll fish with my nephew because I, I'm always going to do that, but I haven't really fished the way that I used to fish for myself in eight years. Because it got too wrapped up in. Because in- I did my passion for my business. I fished all the time. I fished 200 days a year. I fished because I had a fish and, yeah. and, and it changed it. Now, now I'm catching fish because I got to catch fish. I got to catch big fish. I got to chase big fish. I got to spend time doing it. That ruined it for me. And and it's not that I hate fishing. We have a little Jack Russell that we adopted. My wife does dog agility. She's been on 10 world teams. And and he's, I think he's been to eight or nine of them. He was world champion in his jump height. And this poor little dog, he has the same thing. Like he lost vision in one eye, so he can't do agility. He's getting a little older. And he didn't even want to be near the agility equipment. So I can relate to him. Like you you do what you love and then it turns into a job. And I'm not saying it turned into that for my wife, but I'm half joking about, about Zippy, but you know, that happened for me. I just don't, it just took the, I wouldn't want that for someone. So I think in your case, if you're really good at finance, you should use that to, to funnel all of the other things you do that could eventually, I would use that expertise to funnel because it shouldn't be. It sounds like to me, it doesn't take a lot of effort on your part. So you can accomplish the task in less time unless you're doing this crap hourly. No. So I, my thing with Excel is I always try to get better at the program. But if I save, you know, if I take, take a five-hour task and you take 20 minutes, boss wants me to work for the rest of the time. I'd rather just keep the time that I saved. So my thing is I think I'm done with corporate America, but I will teach everyone and their mother how to use it and most efficiently and most effectively to not be wasting time, not have mistakes, make sure they feel confident with themselves and stuff. Because that is what I like about the corporate finance and accounting world. I get how all of it works and I can do a lot of cool things with it, but I don't want to work at another company. I don't know. I I don't think I can have a boss. I'm not sure what the thing is. But even when I started my Excel training, it was all free for like seven years. The podcast, I have no monetization at all. And so meaning like I have to have something that doesn't make me money in order for that hobby not to be just because it's not making money doesn't mean that it can make money, Ben. It just means that you haven't charged for it because you have a self-confidence issue that you think you should give it away. I now charge for it. But what I was saying was that the hobby job thing, I'm trying to, I have to use the hobby part first without it having money in order for the creative juices not to get ruined and for it to go. Oh, that's fair. Down the path. So eventually I'll try to 
make money with the podcast, but only after I feel like I've figured out like what my whole thing is. Cause oh, I, I think you're waiting too long then. Yeah, maybe it's totally possible. I definitely need to edit more episodes more quickly because, um, I'm not getting them up fast enough, but I think well, I can relate to that, but I will tell you that editing, I took it. I used to have mine edited. I took my podcast editing away from the editors because I think you become a better speaker and you become better at what you do by having to listen to yourself. And it's terrible. I'm, I'm a very busy person because I want to be busy. I'm not trying to be important. I'm just busy, but I edit my podcast episodes because it has made me better. I don't think I say like, um, you know, and similar bridging adjectives, prepositions, or whatever they are as much because of listening to myself so much yeah, and other people. Me too. And I've struggled. Uh, I know at the beginning and in my, my Excel training, I, I would edit too much to the point where it sounds a little stilted. Where now I'm trying to edit not at all if possible, except for like levels of something. If, you know, there's over talk or whatever, but A, it takes less time to edit, but B, it makes you a better public speaker and it makes you more likely to get the words right. And I realized pretty early on, if I am silent, that's much more noticeable audio than an um or an uh. Trying to figure out the wave signature of those is not as fun. But yeah, just getting better at actually talking. This is a great way to do it. And doing more of it is really the only way you get better. That's the only way. You gotta keep you gotta keep doing it. So let's uh, I do more wanna I do wanna bridge the gap for your episode so that we get to the story because I started that fishing site and I did raise a million bucks. And Whoa. yeah, what kind so, of fish? We did saltwater fishing, but here's a cool story just as an aside, because I think people who are listening to your podcast are likely wanting to come to terms and also wanting to hear that the truth about people failing. And, you know, we all fail. My successes are, my number of successes are much less than the number of times I've tried. It's just that my successes are big and have allowed me to, to, be fortunate enough to make some money. What happened was I was trying to raise money. I had bought that book going back. My girlfriend and I, now wife at the time, drove to Annapolis, got this book. I wrote a business plan. I'd seen that article in the front of Time magazine. And I wrote a long form business plan and sent it to Sequoia Capital because that's who said funded Yahoo. I never heard back. And then I had seen a a person in the alumni magazine said that he was going to become an investor. And I just wrote to him because he was a senior when I was a freshman and we knew of each other. I said, Hey, here's what I'm doing. He became interested. He had had lunch with a man who was interested in our business as they were talking about fishing. So he came back and said, Hey, are you willing to have a discussion with this guy? I didn't want to give out your information if you weren't. I said, sure. So about three hours later, I get an email and said, hey, I'm Tom. I met with X guy and I was a partner at Sequoia Capital. I'm interested in coming to see you tomorrow. I've been using your website. Now, you can imagine a guy working in his spare bedroom getting an email like that. So my response was, thank you so much. I'd love to see you tomorrow. Here's my address. I'll see you in the morning. Because... You don't really believe that. Next morning, yeah. he knocks on my door, comes into my house. We walk up. He's like, 
uh, can we go to your office? It's like, sure, let's go upstairs. Go up to his spare bedroom. He looks around. He said, is it, he looks me in the eye and he said, is this it? I said, hey, look, if you came looking for more, I am really sorry. I said, the only thing we have is another spare bedroom where my partner's working and that's it. Sorry for the drive. He said, calm down. He said, this is how we found Cisco in their living room. He said, I just thought you were bigger. I was like, and I had all the phones rigged, like answering. It made us sound big. And anyway, we went, we did, did lunch at a local place. He did the business plan on the back of a placemat. He put it in his pocket. I said, hey, do you want to go fishing? He's like, yeah, let's go fishing. So I hooked up the boat, went out to Chesapeake Bay. We went fishing. Coming home, he said, well, how much money do you guys have? I said, well, you know, it fluctuates. And he said, it fluctuates. I said, yeah, it fluctuates. We trade stocks to fund the company. He said, what? I was like, yeah, we, we trade stocks. That's how we fund the company. We build websites. And, I mean, this is early early internet days. We were building websites, but it wasn't like we were getting rich yet. I mean, it was, you know, not a lot of people even, we had to convince people they needed a website in, in the 90s. And he didn't say anything. He, I was driving, I was pulling my 21 foot center console and he pulled out a checkbook and I saw him doing something, ratty checkbook. I didn't even have a, didn't have a cover on it. And he hands me a check. I looked down and he said, let's go. It was $50,000 and that's how I started. And that's not failure, that's success. So then we raised a million dollars, long and short of it. And we started blowing this thing up. We're living the dot-com dream. This is 1999, 2000. 2001 mm -hmm. comes and the internet bubble crashes. And everybody says the internet's going away. And the failure here is, is that I made a mistake by allowing us to grow too fast. So I believed what we did is we grew to the, cover the entire United States and four international destinations before we owned our local market. And at the end of the day, it diluted us. It did make us look big, but we still didn't own one. We still didn't handedly own one market. And that was the failure. And I don't want to say that that's why it failed there's a hundred reasons why it failed, but certainly it was one of the mistakes I made in leading the company of, of a bunch of them, including ramping up too fast without the revenue. But we were effectively, it wasn't venture money. These were all individuals who invested on an angel basis and they were just high net worth investors. But I clearly made that mistake. So I decided, and then we got hit with a lawsuit, which was a whole nother mistake of not having my paperwork correct and not locking down servers. But I bought the company back in 2001 from the investors, most of the assets, renamed it, ran it as a cash cow side hustle for probably eight or 10 years, got done my MBA, quit the venture capital business. I worked at America Online, then I worked at two venture firms and quit that business after I finished my MBA from UNC Chapel Hill and said, I want to move to California, Silicon Valley. Now, in order to move to Silicon Valley, things are really expensive out here. Like houses are really expensive, especially one where we live in Half Moon Bay on the ocean. But that I, I wanted to be in Silicon Valley. I wanted to do another tech company. That was my goal. I put together a five-year business plan. And where I think my success came from was that failure 
and being willing to say, I will not make these mistakes again. And I did not make that mistake. I said, we are going to own the Chesapeake Bay and Mid-Atlantic region for saltwater fishing. And I will not leave this region until I absolutely dominate it, if I leave it ever. And that was the key to the success and having that lesson and being able to look back with honesty and then to execute on that without diverging for diverging from that plan because ultimately what happened was was what my bet was was that if we owned the region it was a big region somebody would want to do a roll-up like i had the original vision not of a roll-up but but we did buy some companies but to cover everything under one network and that someone would need to buy us because it would be a buy versus build and that's exactly what happened and that's how i'm here talking to you from our house in half moon bay california today because that failure taught me the lessons that I was willing to listen to. And I want listeners to know that that did not happen overnight. I was scared to death because I went from being on top of the world running. I mean, you know, we had several hundred thousand people a month coming to that site. We probably had an email list of a hundred thousand, which back then was really big. And even today, if you have a hundred thousand, you're, you know, you should be making at least $100,000 a month. I mean, you're making good money. And I went to nothing. I think I was so scared that I had no idea what I was going to do with my future. I actually dropped out of my master's degree in psychology. I later finished it when I was working on my MBA. I finished my master's in psych and my MBA. But I think I was just so scared that it just scared the crap out of me that I said, I have apps. I've got to figure out what I did wrong before I'm ever going to be able to move forward. And and I think those lessons helped me when I worked at America Online and certainly in the venture capital business. And then later making the bet to go back to full time on my own and execute on that plan. And ultimately that cash flow funded another company for me. So that's my story as it relates to the and, and look, I had I ran that as a side hustle. My brother and I tried a clothing business that didn't really work. It's I'd say it went sideways. It still exists today. Just didn't work the way we wanted because I think we we wanted it to be work faster. But people ask me, I mean, I probably tried, like legitimately tried 20 ideas and two of them have gotten me financially to where I am. But my lessons from all of those accumulate into a, into giving me a better chance as I build other companies. And I have, I'm an investor in companies now and have my own, actually another company I do have a podcast and a media company that I learned my lesson, which is stick to your target audience. But that's really my story, Ben. And, and and I think hopefully a lesson for your listeners that if you listen to your mistake, you can be successful. But if you're not willing to listen, and I meet a lot of entrepreneurs who want my help, that I can't help because I can build the pitch deck. I can build your business plan. I can help you vet the idea I can help you get financed if we're solving a big enough problem, mainly because I can write a check or or have friends who can write checks and know know those people. But if you haven't if you don't haven't done that to yourself, then or haven't if you haven't had that some level of understanding of who you are and the mistakes that you've made and and how they're going to apply to the future, then it becomes a really hard bet. It sounds like it's it taught you both to seek out sustainable growth, not only in your business, so not growing too fast, but sustainable growth in yourself as a person. 
and not taking on too much at once, which I, I think came hand in hand in that example, but it's good advice either way. And like what you were just saying is I'm amazed how much, I mean, I can put together this amazing Excel model that does uh, all the stuff to tell you how much cash you'll have in five years, but I'm not a psychic. And literally you guys go have to go do this stuff in order for it to happen. I mean, just because it's a spreadsheet doesn't mean it's going to happen. And a lot of times they just assume, oh, okay, we got our budget, we got our thing, this is what it's going to be. But that only happens if you do a lot of the work, you know, it can be easy to be persuaded by numbers and the business plan and some other things. But until you really get on the nitty gritty ground floor and see how things are going, it, uh, it can go a lot differently than you'd expected, you know, and, uh, but a lot of people put like almost psychic powers on some forward looking financial plans. And it's like, well, yes, if all these things happen, the math would work out here, but we, we should be spending some more time on strategy and like how we're going to get to this goal. Yeah, I generally believe about in small businesses. I generally believe about thirty days at best. Yeah, they don't know, and you don't know, and it's hard to know if they know from your perspective. I think I think that's the key right there. It's hard to know if they know, and if what they're telling you is true, because you don't know if what they're telling you is a projection of what they want or the actual truth. Unless you get the bank accounts for you, because I'm a finance guy too in that way, you know, until you really get the hardcore stuff. But I think your point is really, really important, which is whether you're doing a business or working on yourself, you got to execute. You can go to the Tony Robbins thing, but if you don't do the work, it's not like you just show up for seven days and Tony just sprinkles some fairy dust on you and you walk out and it's like... You got to do the work there and you got to, you know, I'm only using Tony Robbins because I think it's yeah, good of, course. Of, of that event, but you got to do the work, man. You can't just say, hey, look at how much they spent on self-help books. It yeah, doesn't... like, look at my bookshelf. You, you see that, Ben? I got like 50,000 okay. books, but I didn't read a damn one of them, but just having them there should just give me this aura of of uh, self-awareness. No. Self-help osmosis, maybe. Yeah, it's super hard. So we're getting near the end. I wanted to say I have two more questions that are more forward-looking. Is there anything else on failure that you wanted to mention just before we transition over to some of the current stuff? No, I just think that, I think my main takeaway is really understand and be willing to look at how you failed, why you failed, and and understand who you are. If you can do that, then you will find success. Yeah, and then keep with it. Because really the true failure is when you don't keep trying. I mean, it's when you quit. Because other than that, there's always still a possibility of success, you know, down in the future. And so I heard a couple of things that may, might give me a little bit of insight. But uh, being on the get, uh, guest on the show, you get a get out of fail free card, which is similar to the get out of jail free card, except you can get out of failing some sort of a business venture, hobby, whatever kind of thing, blues singer. I don't care what the thing is. You can use this card to pursue that thing that maybe you would have pursued if it wasn't so. Uh, rife with failure. What would, what would you? What would you cash it in for? Would you go to start tap dancing around the world? Or there's nothing that I need that card for, and I, I'm I'm not being grateful, not being ungrateful for the card. Sure. I, I, all I'm saying is I don't live my life like that. I you wouldn't want it. Is what you're saying? Yeah, like I've already I already do that. I'm already I wanted to go surfing, and I live in Northern California. And the Mavericks wave, which is one of the biggest big waves, is it? in front, literally out in front of my house and a little bit to the right and north, but you can see it. I'm not saying I'm going to surf it, but I started surfing and it's a huge risk. I actually like Ben 
putting myself in situations where I'm the new guy and starting over. So my last guest though said he'd use it for his marriage. What do you think about that? Terrible. I, I love my wife, and I wouldn't. I meant like you don't fail as as a, a husband. No, I, I, I don't think I've I guess failed. Never I yeah, I don't think I've. I think this goes back. I don't know if I'm right, wrong, or people agree or don't agree, but I don't live with regrets. What I accept about myself is that I've made mistakes and I will make mistakes in the future. Personal relationships, business. I don't try to, I just accept that I'm a human and I make the best decisions I can at the moment with the information that I have based on the circumstances of which I'm living. Whether those are real or not doesn't matter. It matters what I perceive to be my own reality. And I make a decision on that. And I accept the responsibility for that. And because of that, I am able to not live with the regret or say, I wouldn't want to live in my relationship without failure because I don't think my relationship would get better. Sure. It is a weird conundrum, like uh, too much perfection or whatever. The, well, whatever it's like it saying, that'd be like saying, you know, if my muscles didn't get sore after I lift or I'm not tired after I do my 40 mile bike ride today, but then I can't get faster. It's weird because I've never really explored the depths of the, of the card and see like, so I would use it for stand-up comedy, for example, only because of how much bombing you have to do in front of everyone. But, but if you don't, I do don't think, bombing. I know, I don't think it means I should clarify somehow and make it so it doesn't mean no failure. Maybe it's like a 50% reduction. Because, <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there's some things that we don't pursue, pursue just because of the amount of failure, you know? And it's interesting to see which one of those things people think are like, uh, you know, whether it's a creative arts thing or someone who does creative arts and thinks, you know, running an international business would be challenging. It's interesting to see what people would have pursued, but kind of avoided it. And I think for you, even with the lawyer thing, you just learned you didn't even want to do it. Right. Right. Like, yeah. So I just, I don't, I don't, for me, I'm not yes. saying it's right for everybody. Same I just for don't any day. I just yeah. don't live my, yeah. I mean, I appreciate it. I got in my back pocket. Man. You want to do like a 900, uh, like a Tony Hawk pro skater thing. You don't want to die off a half pipe. Maybe you can use it that day just for sheer uh, survival. But, it, but I appreciate that because I'm, I'm still trying to figure out how to word it in a way where it doesn't give you like the ultimate cheat code, but still lets you delve into those areas that you might be a little more uncomfortable, but. I'm glad to hear I'm that. Not, I guess what I'm saying is I'm not scared to be uncomfortable. I'm out there with kids who are smoking me on surfing waves and I feel like a total moron, but that's the part of me that I want to. And I started riding bikes when I was in my late thirties with pros and you know, that's what made me better. It's highly uncomfortable. And because I'm the type of person who competes every day, I'm trying to compete with myself to see if I can be better and to see if I can actually handle that situation. Because in order to do that, you got to check your ego. Absolutely. And admit what you do and don't know. And sometimes people don't want to admit certainly the what they don't know part. So really my last question I have is what are you going to fail at next? What's the next big thing that you have no idea what you're doing, but you're going headfirst into it? Is there anything you're... Uh, branching out into that you've is kind of uncharted ter territory for yourself right now it's surfing yeah no i have no idea i mean yeah I'm, I, I've, I mean i don't know nothing I've, i don't know anything surfing's really surfing. hard man it looks hard for sure 
You get hurt a lot? Oh, you get you get worked, man. You get run over by a, a big wave and you get worked underneath there. The water up here is 56 to 58 and we have great white sharks. Sounds intense. Yeah. Back in Boston, the the waves are just like, I don't know, half a foot tall. So you can't, and it's freezing. So we would never, never be surfing for sure. But it does seem like. Uh, that's my newest. That's my newest. I got no idea what I'm doing. I'm trying to get good. But I have, I, I ride waves now, but. It's, yeah, uh, how long have you been doing uh, surfboard? Less than a year. Surfing. Less than a year. How long do you think you have to do till you feel comfortable? Well, I have, a, I have an idea that I'm going to go to Waikiki for two weeks and I'm going to surf every day. And that's going to give me like this intense boost on some easier waves and pure focus on that one thing. I think that's going to increase my skill level because mm -hmm. of the repetition every single day that's going to give me some confidence and that's going to be the boost. That's my current plan. Awesome. Well, that's great to hear. And at some point in my life, hopefully I'll be doing some surfing too, because I've never tried it. And it looks interesting. I it's imagine cool. it's mostly balance and upper body strength at some points. This is totally me making up what I think is the case, but, but I do want to try it since we're basically out of time though. Is there any way you want to point the listeners to see what you're working on these days? Yeah. Anybody that wants to check me out, check my podcast out or articles that I write, you can check me out at brandoncwhite.com. Just B-R-A-N-D-O-N-C as in Christian, white, W-H-I-T-E dot com. And then could you just give us the name, name of the podcast in case anyone wants to look at oh, it? Oh, yeah. Uh, just uh, search for Build a Business Success Secrets, and we are on all of the platforms. Cool. Well, Thanks for thank letting you. me do that, Ben. Absolutely. I mean, I want to make sure people can hear at least where you're giving this great advice because I think uh, a lot of people don't know what they're doing when it comes to building a business, myself included, for sure. So I, I, I bet your, your listeners are already benefiting from it. And I'm happy to be a new one because I want to hear the gems that you have to offer. Well, thank you. Yeah, I'm really grateful for that. And thanks for having me on, man. Absolutely. And I wish you much success in anything else you're working on and, uh, and hope to talk to you again soon. Thanks. Would you like to be more efficient, productive, and confident in your work at the office? Over 750 million people worldwide use Excel, yet it's still a misunderstood and frequently misused tool. That's why I created Excel Exposure, so you can work smarter and not harder. The Excel Essentials course gives you over five hours of in-depth video lessons. Plus, it comes along with my master workbook, which has every function, shortcut, and all the examples to follow along. Investopedia actually included my course in their list of six best online Excel classes of 2021, saying it's best for visual learners. As someone who's an expert in failure, I can certainly teach you and your team how to avoid spreadsheet failures and create bulletproof Excel documents. Use the coupon code FAILURE for 20% off of the lifetime access price. Visit ExcelExposure.com for more information and also my existing award-winning free training. Thanks for joining me on the Failure Guy podcast. If you enjoyed it, feel free to tell somebody. And don't forget, always try to fail it till you nail it. Till next time.